We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. For those who have not heard one of these shows before, it is a roughly monthly uh, special episode, bonus episode, where instead of interviewing a uh, top chess player or author or personality, um, I have a conversation with a fellow club player from the chess community about a classic chess book. And this month, we will be talking about the excellent positional primer for club players called Simple Chess by Grandmaster Michael Steen. And joining me to discuss this book will be Jonathan Bryant, who is best known on chess Twitter, as I call uh, Twitter for people who tweet mainly about chess, for the abysmal depths of chess blog. And he has actually been blogging about this book for over a month, very detailed. So I encourage listeners who whose interest is piqued to, to check that out or just to generally uh, check out Jonathan's blog and keep up with it. 
Um, but without further ado, let's bring Jonathan in and find out a bit more about himself and why he chose this classic book. What's going on, Jonathan? Hi, Ben. How are you? Happy uh, Christmas. Happy holidays to you and your family and everyone. I hope everyone's had a good time. I guess it's probably New Year by the time they will get to hear this. Yeah, it'll be close. But in any event, like you say, yes, happy holidays and uh, and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and all that stuff. I hope everyone's staying healthy and being safe in this home stretch of this uh, brutal um, uh, virus. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, yeah, simple chess. I guess there's there's a couple of reasons why I thought it'd be a, re- a really good book. Firstly, I think it's a very accessible book. Um, it, I think people from a whole range of stress, chess strengths can get something out of it. Um, secondly, it just seems to have been around my whole chess life. I can remember one of the very first chess magazines um, I ever bought, and this would have been back in the late 80s, 1988, I think. Um, there was an article about different books that people could get, and who I can't remember who it was in, but they said, you know, Simple Chess is this really good introduction to, to positional play. Um, and, of course, I didn't. Uh, not only did I not read it, I didn't even buy it at, at that point. Um, and continued on my life and then through my chess life and every now and again um, it would come up and uh, a friend of mine Angus who I was in a club with uh, would often drive me to away matches in for club games and he would have a copy of this book in the the driver's side door compartment Um, and I saw it and I would talk to him about it and he said it was a good book and I still didn't get it at at some point I got a copy um, and like a lot of chess books, didn't read it still. And then all of these years later, the start of this year, um, the lockdown happened in London like a lot of other places, and I was just starting to come back to chess. I was always involved with it, but not actually playing it for a few years. And I was picking up books here and there uh, and looking at a different book every day. And then I kind of saw this book at the top of my pile, and I thought... If I'm not going to work through it now, then I'm never going to. And I did went through it from start to finish and realized what an excellent book it is. And I feel a bit like uh, a couple of years ago when I got a Pink Floyd album, um, Dark Side of the Moon, and was going on to everyone about how good it was. And everyone else was saying, yeah, we know for about 30 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're about 30 years late on that one. Um, and, and it's exactly the same thing. This book, absolutely deserves its reputation um and then um i kind of around started listening to your podcast at a similar kind of time and i started hearing the the book club and i thought you know someone should do this and then i thought right well i'm gonna start blogging about it i want to go through it again game by game to make myself do that i'll start writing some posts on it i'll commit to writing a post on every game uh, one post a day for a couple of months um, and around about that time, the Keith Harkle interview came up where he mentioned how important it was for him. Um, and then I think even when we started talking about doing this interview, there was a guy you in, you did a podcast with. I think he runs a chess club down in the south of America somewhere. Yeah, maybe Peter Giannato. Yeah, and he mentioned it and it just it always seems to be around so that's a really long introduction to to why i like this book but it has been kicking around my life for 30 years and i've only really just started focusing on it these last few months okay well thank you for the perspective jonathan a couple things to add number one i'm a big fan of dark side of the moon as well it's absolutely 
classic album um, from Pink Floyd. But funny that you should mention, I mean, I know that this book is sort of mentioned as a classic. Chess Dojo, our friends at Chess Dojo recently did a a nice little video um re, like ranking their top 10 pre 2000 books that uh and simple chess was one of the books they talked about but for me and from my perspective i think it's maybe not quite as well known here in the us right. as in great britain i feel like the book is kind of having a moment now um you know neil bruce who mentioned it when we recapped sure. uh, winning chess strategies uh ranked it as his number 2 positional uh, chess primer, and we'll get to where we rank it, but I just feel like I see it in the discourse a lot now. And in the US, I didn't necessarily see it as much prior to that. Um, another potential reason, um, Fred Wilson, when he came on the podcast, talked about it. And uh, Fred Wilson of uh, Fred Wilson Books in New York City, he actually uh, helped edit it, and he got credit for, for editing it. Um, he um, the, the, the history of this book is that it was originally published in 1978 by Faber and Faber, reissued in algebraic in 2003 by Dover. And Fred apparently was consulting with Dover at the time as one of the people who told them, this is a classic book, you need to, to republish it. It's also a bargain. I know the Kindle version is less than 10 bucks. I think even the paperback version is, is um, pretty inexpensive. So lots of reasons to get into this, to get into this book. Um, so how would you describe the content of this book, Jonathan? Um, it is, um, it's about, as you said, it's a positional chess. It's not so much about tactics, although there are a couple of tactical positions in it that come up as part of the games. Um, it's about positional concepts, concepts, very, the very basics of positional play. Um, it's a collection of games. Mo it's nearly all complete games. There are some game fragments and a few composed positions that Michael Steen has put in to illustrate a few points. But essentially, it's about complete games that Steen analyzes um, to show the concepts that he's talking about. And they're games that, are, for the most part, play between 1970 and 1975. At least in the version that I have, I'd be interested to know if anything's changed in the algebraic. Um, there are a few from the 60s, a couple from the 50s, and only two from pre-war. Um, but they are complete games of pretty much all the leading players of the day. And Fisher obviously has a number of games in it because still even in the mid to late 70s, uh, and obviously a lot long after that, he still was very a dominant figure in, in British the British chess culture of the time, clearly. Um, the other interesting thing about the book is that uh, Steen talks in the introduction about how he's chosen games deliberately that at the time anyway wouldn't likely be published because they were too simple, not spectacular enough to warrant publication, they're not flashy attacks. They're not exciting. They're not not exceptional in any way, but they're very clearly showing different different themes. That he he has uh, seven chapters in all, and he deals with a different theme in each chapter. And the other thing, which I don't think Steen does mention particularly, but I think it was very noticeable when I was looking through the book, is that the games tend not to be the very top level player against very top level player. There is one game from Reykjavik, the Fischer-Spassky match. There are a couple of games from Candidates matches, but for the most part, they're really, really good player against good player. So there's a difference in class between 
um, the the participants in the games, and that I think allows the game to be really instructive. Because to be frank, the less good player is not good enough to stop the other guy showing what he wants to do. So we can actually see it happen on the board. Um, whereas if you had two very top level players or perhaps two players these days with the, the way that standards have risen, you wouldn't see these things happening on the board because the the person who ends up losing, in fact, wouldn't lose because he'd stop the plan from happening. He wouldn't let his opponent get an outpost near to his king. He wouldn't let his opponent dominate an open file and then penetrate on the seventh. He, he would stop this happening. Um, now, I probably should say this is all relative. And um, when I mentioned this on Twitter, Richard James, who uh, I know you've mentioned a few times, junior, very big in junior chess over here, very big in London. He he kind of took me to task a bit and said, well, you know, you said Karpov against Ullman, that's great player against kind of mediocre guy. That's a bit harsh on Ullman, which it is. <laughs> but it, right. in that context, he is a notch below. Um, so, for example, you get... Um, uh, Portish playing Rzhevsky in 73 and, and Portish just, just crushes Rzhevsky. And obviously Rzhevsky is a, a fantastic player as, when you take his life as a whole. But 73, this game was played, this is a quarter of a century after his best time. So he wasn't, yeah. you know, in that sense, not the very, very best. But then you get Petrosian or Petrosian, however, not sure how you pronounce it even. You get him crushing Portish. So Portish becomes the the weakling in a couple of games. And then you get Fisher crushing Petrochan in a candidate's final game. So it's all relative, but it's the point is, I think that for the most part, whether this was deliberate choice on Steen's part or not, we're talking about games where there's a different in class. So someone actually gets a chance to show the ideas relatively, um, relatively clearly rather than the other person yeah. putting a block in the way. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And what you mentioned about like following the games, I think is important because I actually, until Fred Wilson recommended this book a couple of years ago, I hadn't heard on the podcast, I hadn't heard too much about it. And I actually bought it from Fred when we met in person was like, okay, I'm finally going to check this out. But as you, as you said, with your experience, it was just kind of sitting around and it, it was starting to get recommended so much that I had picked it up a couple of times and just looked at it, but I still hadn't properly read it. And it's just not the same. It's really a book where you really need to sit down and play through the games and appreciate all the subtleties that play out in the course of uh, the given games. So it was only in the course of getting ready for this uh, podcast that I really appreciated um, just what a great book it is and just just how instructive it is. Um, I also feel like we should say a bit more about Michael Steen himself. Um, just to give listeners a bit more context, uh, he was a top 50 player in the world, or at least at his peak he was. Uh, he worked as a second to Korchnoi in his famous 1978 match with Karpov. He played five chess Olympiads for Britain, British co-champion in 1974. But he's also one of these guys who retired from chess relatively early at the age of 29 in 1982. Um, he actually became an accountant and he has a successful career uh, working for an accounting firm in London. I actually tried to email him through uh, through that firm and I uh, didn't get a response yet, but I would love to interview him someday. I was hoping to at least get a quote about uh, his perspective on the book, but maybe um, some other time. But I mean, he's left an absolute classic for us to uh, enjoy. I also understand the book he wrote on the Nidorf um, was quite well received back in its heyday. Obviously, opening books often don't age as well, but 
I think it does do a good job explaining the ideas of the Nidorf. Um, so a little bit more. And of course, uh, being British, Jonathan, I'm sure you you could uh, could share even a bit more about um, the uh, Steen's legacy. Yeah, well, I guess going backwards, the last um, the last time I saw him, there was um, before the London Chess Classic really took off in London. There was a series of tournaments held in the Strand in Simpsons in the Strand, which was a famous old chess cafe. Um, but there was serious tournaments there or organized by, I think the Howard Staunton Memorial Society. Um, and Korchnoi played in one of them. And I saw Steen in the audience there one day. I mean, I was quite lucky in that it was free to enter. Um, and I was studying at the London School of Economics at the time, which is literally straight over the road from the tournament venue. So I was able to go every day. Um, I saw him there. And he is mentioned in Dominic Lawson's book on the Nigel Short World Championship campaign because he was uh, Nigel Short's business manager during the match, at least. Um, and before that, I mean, when I started playing in the kind of late 80s, so he'd already retired long since, but I kind of find out, found out about him. He was the third English grandmaster, um, becoming a grandmaster in his early 20s, which at the time was unusual. I mean, now... That would be a really late, late bloomer, late, you know, 23, 24, 25. But at the time, that was early. Um, and he was part of the group at Cambridge University, people like Ray Keane, Bill Hartston, uh, a few others, who really turned English chess from a relative backwater into the what became known as the English chess explosion. Um, I used to write a chess blog a long time ago and I interviewed Bill Hartston and he, he described them as turning British chess from, or English chess at least, in, from the amateurish ways of the 50s and 60s to the, you know, they were the missing link between that and the professional era of first Tony Miles and then Spielman and John Nunn and Nigel Short. Um, and and Steen was part of that and he got into working with Korchnoi through Ray Keane um, and he worked with Korchnoi from the candidates final um, that Korchnoi played against Spassky in 77-78 um, and is credited by Ray Keane for doing a lot of really important German analysis that essentially I think you could argue certainly, if not decided the match, then certainly pushed it in um, Korchnoi's favour. And then he continued working with him until not, all the way to the end of the 1981 cycle when he was there in the match against the second match against Karpov. And I, I mean, I don't know this because I've certainly not seen anything written by him and he's he's been out of chess mostly for the last 40 years. But I do wonder if he kind of got to the point where he's thinking, okay, well, I've played, I've got my Grandmaster title, I've been through two World Championship challenges with Korchnoi. Where do I go from here in chess? Is there anywhere I can reach that's going to match what I've already done? And perhaps he thought, no, there wasn't. And he wanted to move on to do other things. And also maybe late 20s is perhaps when you start thinking of settling down and having a family. And even back then, I doubt that making a living in chess was the most secure of professions and perhaps he just felt he could move on to other things yeah as we've alluded to a few times on the podcast it was definitely harder to make a living uh in chess at that time and um a lot of people of that generation moved on to other activities some have involved stayed more involved than others in the game so it's good to hear that he at least popped his head up once or twice but uh I'm, he would be welcome back uh 
if, if he ever were to um to get more involved in the chess world or you know obviously it would be awesome if he wrote another book um so before we start talking about the contents of the book last thing i think it might be clear from sort of the illusions we've made but i did think it might be helpful for listeners if we explicitly discussed uh what rating range this book is is most helpful for um so you know i'm around 2150 uscf and i found it quite instructive i mean i would say i mean some of the, a few of the games i already knew not not as many as in the aforementioned uh winning chess strategies by yasser sarawan that neil bruce and i discussed but i would say out of the 30 probably like you know seven or something like that and of course they're as as is often said classics for a reason so i can still learn from seeing what what his particular annotations um, where, so I definitely learned from it, but I would say like, uh, peak, um, it, it's best suited for players, probably in my opinion, rated from like 1300 to 1900. Um, it's very clearly explained ideas. So even if it's somewhat aspirational for you to play the way that these grandmasters play, I mean, let's face it, it's aspirational for almost all of us. Um, but it's, it's a very, um, accessible primer for a wide range of players do you do you agree with that assessment Jonathan? Uh, absolutely i mean i know you you teach um i used to a long time ago but i typically taught beginners rather than people that would i think start to be able to make use of, of this kind of book um so absolutely the people i mean as he says in his introduction you know if you're once you've stopped being able to get scholars mate how do you win games so this is you know that's the lower end of the scale perhaps at the top end, certainly up to 1900, maybe 2000, depending on what your knowledge of positional themes is. I mean, when I started the book a couple of months ago for the second time, I had the idea that there were two main groups of people that could use it, make use of it. The first one was people who never really looked at positional themes before. And secondly, I mean, I, I thought this was true for myself, is that for those of us who, and I know this is a theme you've talked a lot on the podcast about, if you didn't grow up with chess, and I didn't, I didn't start playing until I was 18, not seriously anyway, and you don't kind of have these themes in your DNA, I kind of have this theory that some of us know some quite advanced material because of the books we read and the games we follow, but our grasp on the absolute basics is not as solid as perhaps it might be. Um, and I had been recommended... Uh, to work through Mastering Chess Strategy, which by Helston, I think. And I thought, mm -hmm. I need to make sure I know the basics first. And I started to read, that's one the main reason why I went through Simple Chess the second time. And I think it really did help me rethink a few things. You know, I know about, as I'm sure most readers of the or listeners to the podcast will, I know about open files. I know about weak pawns. I know about outputs. I know about this concept called space. But do I, this is kind of hard to explain without being able to write it down, but do I know it in bold, in, in italics, and in a size 32 font? Do I absolutely know it without having to think about it just in the same way that, you know, I don't have to stop to think about how you speak English. It's what I know. But do I know these positional themes in the same way? And I think I probably don't. And I did find the way that Steen writes about them really instructive and really helpful. Because he, he's, his, anal his analysis is a very particular style. It's not variation heavy. Um, it's mostly verbal. It's light notes. There's only, I think, a dozen or so places in the whole book where he gives two options or more for one side. 
instead of this move, he could have played this or that. It's mostly not like that. It's it's explanations of what's going on verbally, um, and and that I found really helpful. So I'd absolutely agree with what you're saying there. And potentially, depending on how people feel, they are so, how secure they are in their knowledge of these these themes, maybe even higher than two thousand two thousand one hundred. I don't know. Above that, you're getting above above my rating, so I probably can't talk knowledgeably about that area. But certainly players of my strength and experience, of even, you know, 30 years of playing chess, 30 years of reading chess magazines, following Grandmaster Games, it was still helpful to actually see these ideas written down and clarified and talked about in a way that I hadn't considered before. Yeah. A um, couple of things to add. Um, Mastering Chess Strategy by Helston, absolutely fantastic book, but I think it's definitely more advanced than Simple Chess. Sure. I mean, there's some there's some overlap of uh, who might benefit from it, but I would definitely read Simple Chess first. Also, expounding on what you said about um, like knowing about open files and uh, knowing about the you know weaknesses of various pawns. What what he really does a good job explaining is is the why. He really just like you know why are why are open files good? Why can half open files be better than open files? And so on and so forth. And uh, what you were saying called to mind one of my favorite quotes from the book, um, which is in, I believe, the chapter about space. But he's talking about the Chagor and Roy Lopez, yeah. which when this book was written was one of the main lines of chess. I mean, so many games when I was growing up, when I was like my chess education in the late 80s, early 90s, um, where reams of theory of uh, classical Roy Lopez now with the primacy of the Berlin and the Marshall and the Italian, you know, um, making a comeback of sorts. You don't see as many by any means, but this is what he said about the Chagor and Roy Lopez. He said, never in the history of chess have so many moves, referring to the first 12 moves of this, been repeated so often, so quickly by so many people who didn't really understand them. Have you ever examined these well-tried and trusted moves with a critical eye? Why, for example, should White spend 12 moves to develop just four pieces? Why waste four of these moves to preserve a bishop, which will in all probability later become bad, in quotes, when White blocks the center with d5? By answering these questions, we can gain a lot of insight into White's overall strategy in the Lopez. Um, and then he goes on to look at, I believe it was uh, Karpov Unziker. Um, and yeah, I mean, just lots of little stuff like that where he really breaks things down into uh, small pieces. So we want to talk about what each chapter, or at least list what each chapter is about and get even deeper into the book. But first, I'd like to take a break and hear from our friends at AIM Chess. If you haven't already checked out our new sponsor, aimchess.com, I definitely recommend that you do so. They collect your games from LeeChess and Chess.com and tell you about the things that you need to work on to improve your game. It automatically collects them and then sends you reports. They also have a year in 2020 review of your games where and they can even quiz you on mistakes you made. So definitely a great product. They have a free version as well as a subscription. So you can go check it out for free. And then if you like it, use the promo code Chess. 30 that's chess 30 to get a discount on your subscription and let them know that you came from perpetual chess okay back to the book recap okay and we are back and jonathan has a small correction on which karpov game it was go ahead jonathan okay so there were there were two at least as far as i know two very famous um karpov games from nice Olympiad in 1974 in the Rye Lopez. Um, one of them was against Unziker, which is not in this book, although I, I think it kind of should be because it completely fits in with the chapter and the quote 
that you just gave me. But the game that's in the book is in um, uh, is Karpov against Wisterinen, which I'm probably pronouncing very badly. But he was a, I think, a Finnish grandmaster, or possibly not at that time, but was a, a leading player, and he just gets completely crushed. And in fact, that game features my favourite position, not only in the book, but of all time because it has there are no um there are no pieces exchanged um there are two pairs of pawns being exchanged it's moved 27 and black's entire army both rooks both knights both bishops the queen are all on from a square between a8 and e8 and a7 and e7 and those 10 squares on the back in the right hand corner his whole army has been squished and if you try to construct a game where you could plausibly leave black in that position you just nothing would be believable but when you play through the game you just see little by little Karpov just pushes him back Uh, it's a it's a fantastic game and a really really funny position although perhaps not for black in that at the time yeah, and whether you have the book or not, once again, you can check out Jonathan's blog. He wrote about that specific game. And I believe you mentioned that Steen says in the book that, he's, that he finds that to be the most complex game in the whole book. Yeah, he said the, hard, well, the hardest to understand. And his argument is that because the chapter is about space, but then as as the game goes on, little by little, Karpov translate the, translates the space advantage into other kinds of positional advantages. So... He gets um, outposts on C6 and C4, I think it is, one for the bishop, one for the knight. Then he gets an open file um, and he gets a possible to penetrate on the seventh rank. So all of these things are concepts he's been discussing earlier in the book that come up, that are derived from a space advantage. So that's why he says it's the most complicated to understand is because you have to understand the whole book. It's not just about space. It's about outposts. It's about weak pawns. It's about open files as well. Um, it, it's a it is a great game, and it's. I was just playing through it uh, yesterday again, and I, I think it's the sort of game we could go through any number of times, and every time see something new in it, something you didn't understand before, something you didn't see before. Yeah, the space chapter generally is is just amazing. He does a really good job explaining like why it matters because it's it's another thing that is not necessarily intuitive. Um, so I wanted to read the opening paragraph just to give listeners um, a. Uh, you know, a deeper sense of uh, Steen's writing style. And if you'll indulge me, listeners, when we're actually, this one is, I'm actually going to read the first three paragraphs. So buckle up and uh, listen close or fast forward about a minute. So here we go. This is uh, how the book begins from um, the words of Grandmaster Michael Steen. He says, simple chess is an introduction to chess strategy aimed primarily at those players for whom strategy in chess is almost an impenetrable mystery. By isolating the basic elements and illustrating them through a selection of master and grandmaster games, Simple Chess attempts to break down the mystique of chess strategy into plain, clear, easy-to-understand ideas. The book assumes only a knowledge of chess terminology from the reader. Don't be deceived by the title. Chess is not a simple game. Such a claim would be misleading, to say the least. But this is... But that does not mean that we must bear the full brunt of its difficulty. When faced with any problem too large to cope with as a single entity, common sense tells us to break it down into smaller fragments of manageable proportions. For example, the arithmetical problem of dividing one number by another is not one that can in general be solved in one step, but primary school taught us to find the answer by a series of simple division processes, namely long division. So how do we break down the quote problem of playing chess? 
Give two of the uninitiated a chessboard, a set of chessmen, a list of rules, and a lot of time, and you may well observe the following process. The brighter of the two will quickly understand the idea of checkmate and win some games by the scholar's mate when the less observant of our, of our brethren learns how to defend his F7 square in time, the games will go longer and it will gradually occur to the players that the side with more pieces will generally per se be able to force an eventual checkmate. This is the first important reduction in the problem of playing chess. The numerically superior force will win. So now our two novices will no longer look to construct direct mates. These threats are too easy to parry, but we'll look to learn the tricks of the trade for winning material. Forks, skewers, pins, etc. Confident that this smaller objective is sufficient. Time passes and each player becomes sufficiently competent not to shed material without reason. Now they begin to realize the importance of developing quickly and harmoniously and of castling the king into safety. So what next? What are their new objectives? How can the problem be further reduced? If each player is capable of quick development, castling, and of not blundering pieces away, what is there to separate the two sides? This is the starting point of simple chess. Um, so just an amazing introduction, don't you think, Jonathan? Yeah, um, I I really like, and and I think that's a good um, a good example of how he writes throughout the book. It's just clear. Um, it's not it's not flowery prose. It's just. It, it's it's no nonsense it just gets to the point of explaining where what he wants to explain and and it's clear and it's easy to read and and you can be through it pretty quickly and it's not i don't think i ever had in the book any moment where i had to stop and think what does he mean by this what yeah. what what is that is that a misprint has he left has, has someone left a word out of this sentence you know which you get in a lot of books um, and a lot of chess books particularly and you're not really sure what it is they're trying to say um but you never get that at least i never found that in um in michael steen's book and i think the writing is just it's just just really well written um yeah yeah clear um not like you say not very um not very flowery, just like direct and to the point to contrast it again with winning chess strategies. I think both are well-written and instructive, but um, Yasser, I would say, is a little more folksy or colloquial than Michael right. Steen for the most part. Um, but but I enjoy them both uh, a lot. Um, so the chapters, just to, again, give a sense of uh, what's covered in the book. After the introduction, there's chapters on outposts, weak pawns, open files, half open files slash the minority attack. Uh, black squares and white squares, basically meaning color complexes and space. Um, so we've got a bunch of questions, related questions from friend and supporter of the podcast, Jeff Anderson, who is also a fan of uh, this book. So we'll uh, tackle, tackle them one by one. You ready for me to read you the first one, Jonathan? Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so Jeff says, I've read four books on chess strategy, Nimzowicz's My System, Gelfand's Positional Decision-Making in Chess, Capablanca's Chess Fundamentals, and Steen's Simple Chess. In my humble opinion, Capablanca's good book is second to the other three, which I rate as tied for first in quality. However, at 160 pages, Steen's great book is shorter than the books of Nimzowicz and Gelfand, and is to be recommended for that reason alone to adult chess players who have limited time available for chess study. GM Steen packs a lot of great instruction into a short book. Would you agree? I would 100% agree with that. And just something you mentioned earlier, that it, it's really inexpensive now. Um, I think you can get it 
in England for four, four or five pounds. Um, you can get it on Kindle now, which I'm, I'm sure help helps a lot. Um, it, for, for the the value for money element of simple chess is so much higher. I mean, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone of, of being really excited about the latest release and getting new books and getting, a, you know, new publications and then using Chessable and using other, you know, other kinds of formats that just weren't available when simple chess was written. But at the end of the day, this has got a lot to say for it and you're not risking a lot in terms of money or time if you decide to 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 go down this route and i i don't think you'll be disappointed um but even if you were you won't have lost that much so I, but i i do agree basically with jeff that it just there's so much good stuff in it for so little money that it should be in everyone's library at the very least i would hope people would agree with that yeah, I, I agree. Um, and just to to speak to the four books that Jeff mentioned, um, my system obviously a bit of a lightning rod in the chess community. Right. Uh, Yasser Sarawan himself has been critical of it. Uh, the aforementioned Chess Dojo video um, where they ranked the classic chess books, if memory serves, they actually ranked it number one, which I was surprised because, you know, um, Jesse Cry is a uh, pushing 50 as he is uh, quick to discuss. David Proust, I think, is in his around 40. And Kostya, of course, is 30. So uh, I am Kostya Kovutsky. So they represent different generations. And I was a bit surprised that I believe, again, they spoke highly of my system because I need to reread it. But, um, you know, regular listeners may have heard me say my recollection of it, even reading it as a kid when there were a lot fewer offerings, was that it's a bit dry. Um, so I would not rank it. I would rank it definitely lower than simple chess based on my um, somewhat hazy recollection. Um, so again, that's subject to revision. If the facts change, I'll change my mind. But that's where I stand on that now. Uh, Gelfin's positional decisional make excuse me positional decision making in chess is an absolute masterpiece, but significantly more advanced in my opinion. Um, so I would, I would put that after, if you're just looking to like run the gamut of positional books, I would put that even after mastering chess strategy, um, and Capablanca's chess fundamentals. I have not read, but from what people have said, I think it might be, uh, simpler than simple chess. Um, so I can't speak to its quality, but you might want to tackle that one first. Um, so that tackles the first half of, uh, or the first part of Jeff's question, um, and number two gets to what you were getting to, what you mentioned about it being on Kindle. Um, so, Jonathan, because uh, Jeff says, I work through each of the four books I mentioned by loading every game and test position the author used into chess base much easier than it sounds, thanks to chessgames.com. So in, in that, what Jeff's alluding to there is they... Some people have actually organized the games. Like if you go, if you search simple chess, chessgames.com, you'll find a link where all the games from simple chess are listed on one page. Um, so that if you download those games, you have the games without tracking them down separately. Um, and then Jeff goes on to say, uh, and they add the author's comments. I Oh, he adds the author's comments in his chess space. I did this to read the book more easily and so that I could build on the author's work, work by adding variations of interest to me. Further, this process preserved my work so I can easily revisit the book in the future, which I'm now doing on a rotating basis. What is your recommended approach to working through GM Steen's book? And for those of us who lack photographic memories, what are your suggestions for retaining the material on chess strategy that GM Steen presents? So what do you think, Jonathan? Wow. Um, I mean, that's, I guess at the heart of that question is how do we work on chess? And I mean, we, you, 
we could do a whole series of podcasts on that question alone. So I guess just very quickly tripping through some ideas that I have. Uh, and this is something that I, I did mention I should perhaps just talk about in passing on the blog is that I was doing a post a day. Um, and so seven posts every for each chapter every week and there weren't always seven games so i would just sometimes just put a post up and with different thoughts on how to how to work with the book so um if anyone's interested in i've what i've got to say about that then certainly uh, they might find the blog interesting um i i absolutely believe that the best process is the one that you'll actually do so whatever i'm about to say if it doesn't suit you or whoever the listener is, then it's no good for you. And, you know, my advice is, is worthless, even if technically I'm correct. If it's not right for you, then it, it's no good. Uh, and and also that each of us has different needs. And in fact, we also have different needs ourselves at different times in our lives. I mean, I'm 52 now. I'm sufficiently old that I just had to double check in my mind how exactly how old I was before I said mm. it. Um, but what I, you know, when I first heard of simple chess back in 88, I wouldn't have had to worry about remembering the games because I would have just played through them with interest and that would have been enough. Um, and had I done so, I probably still remember them now. And there are certainly games that I remember from that time that I do remember. On the other hand, the stuff that I did yesterday or even this afternoon that I have no clue about, I just, I have to work harder now. So, so I guess there is that. Um, I, I think there's also, without being too abstract about it, there's something about the language we use in in chess learning or trying to get better at chess that isn't always that helpful. So I was interested in Jeff's question there, and then just at the end, he said, "Oh, we, I don't have a photographic memory or something along those lines." And I just don't, I don't know that it's naturally that helpful to to talk like that. There's, you know, I don't know Jeff at all, but. I'm sure he's got just as good memory as anyone. It's just about finding a way to use it. And so I guess the first way to work effectively of the book is stop sending ourselves negative messages about how <laughs> we work with chess. And if we're not getting it better, why, you know, is it because I'm not working the right way and, and all the rest of it? Going um, for the growth mindset. Huh, yeah. Duncan? I mean, I, I do genuinely believe that because it's so easy. It's so easy to say, Oh, it, it's me. I'm the problem, and I just don't don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, and also, before I get into the kind of actual chess stuff, something that I think is really true for me, and I've been thinking a lot over the last month in particular, is the the first thing has got nothing to do with chess, and it's just like, are you sleeping enough? Um, yeah, I've been reading a lot by a couple of guys who I'm gonna forget, so I'm gonna look up while I'm talking. Um, and they've written a book, a couple of books. One is called The Passion Paradox. And the other one, do I have it on my phone? I'm not sure that I do. Okay, I'll have to look that up. Um, but okay. it, it's essentially, it's it's not just about sporting performance psychologists. How do, we, how do we perform really well at stuff? How do we get better at stuff? How do we turn in good performances day in, day out, be it at our day jobs or our hobbies or whatever it is? And... And they talk about just you know, if you're not if you're not rested, then you're not gonna you're not gonna perform. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, and if anyone does follow me on Twitter, that you'll know that I'm I'm very interested in what we can learn from other disciplines about how they 
how they how do they learn how do they improve how do they get better at their thing um and one of the things i'm interested in is running and i read this book once about this guy who went to kenya to run with kenyans who were certainly at the time and may still be for all i know kind of the elite of that field and he kind of turned up expecting them to be training 24 hours a day you know sort of running 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 and no that's not the case they were actually in bed a lot of the time doing nothing at all but resting you know they they were they were running and they were resting and that was it so if you're not if you're not getting enough sleep and this is certainly true for me if you're overwhelmed with what's going on in the world or your family life or your work or your your whatever then it's going to be hard to study effectively so um thinking about that kind of thing i think is important yeah and i i believe i've seen you make allusions either in your blog or on twitter jonathan to the idea that the running community is not as obsessed with improvement as the chess community well it's different i i think they are but in a different way in running you never when when i with people i follow on twitter who are runners they never ask how do i get better at running how do i get my time down how do i run faster at 5k or 10k they just they what they do is they tell you that they've been out for a run they'll tell you that they 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 follow a training program that's actually a program not just a i felt like running today so i did although sometimes they do that but you know they have an actual schedule of activities that they're planning to do whereas chess for some reason this is a question we ask a lot how do i get better at chess and and i can you know it's slightly odd because Firstly, no one knows, and secondly, everyone knows. It's like no one knows exactly, but everyone knows you have to work hard. You have to put the hours in. You have to put um, the hard yards. I'm, I've just started reading um, uh, the book you had Peter Wells on, I think, just before Christmas. Um, yeah, It's all in the mindset. And the, they're talking about how do you sustain yourself by going to go through the hard yards that you need to do. And it's just for some reason, chess players seem unwilling to accept that that is it. That's the answer. You have to put the work in. Yeah, well um, said. So, um, having just insulted the audience, uh, <laughs> I didn't mean it exactly yeah. in that way, but I, I do think we can we can kid ourselves sometimes that, and I'm and I'm not saying that this is at the root of Jess' question, but we can kid ourselves sometimes that there's a trick to this. There's a trick to studying simple chess or the book or chess in general, but there's no trick. You have to do a lot of work. You have to do exactly what Jeff has done, which is. Okay, not exactly that thing, not necessarily put the games into chess space, but you have to spend the hours with the book. You have to look through the games and think about them. You have to think, okay, well, Steen says this, is that true? Or Steen says that, I didn't realise that, I'd never thought about it in that way before. Do I have to rethink things? Can I take what Steen said and think about my own games? And does that help me understand what's going on in in the books, games, and also my own. Does you know you have to do that? Put that kind of effort in. You ha- it takes time and it takes um, takes effort, and it's going to take yeah, it will, it will take a while. There's no there's no trick to this. There's nothing I can say that will say that will lead you as short as the book is, as clearly re- written as it is. There's no little magic button that anyone can press to say right, this book is now in your head and you're now 200 ELO points higher rated than you were before. Yeah, if if only. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, a couple other things to add, uh, responding to Jeff's question. Um, so he mentioned uploading it into Chessbase. I know not everyone has Chessbase, but if you do, of course, the more recent versions have the replay feature where you guess the move, where um, okay. it feeds you their move, and then you guess the next move. So it's similar to anyone who's read Pandolfini's Solitaire Chess column or anyone else's Solitaire Chess um, offerings. It's similar to that and you guess the move. So that would be one way that, that Jeff or anyone else could take it even further. Um, of course, Neil Bruce would suggest flashcards of uh, key, key positions, whether they be positional ideas or tactical. But like you say, Jonathan, the most important thing is just to per periodically revisit um, the material. Although I do feel like um, it's, it's not the same as tactical problems. I mean, there are a few positions where it can be good to um, to under to repeat an idea, but it's not the exact same because um, the the positions are not going to recur. Like if it's a certain uh, checkmate in four pattern, like a smothered mate or something like that, exact pattern would would recur. Whereas with positional ideas, often the devil's in the details. You know, you move one pawn one square, and it you know it changes the positional idea. So I do think it's good to really try to make sure you understand the ideas of the book. But I don't think. Um, it's necessarily as as important as repeating um, things like opening review and um, tactics patterns would be, but that's that's just my opinion. Um, one more question from Jeff, which is: um, Is there an aspect of positional chess strategy that you feel that GM Steen does not cover well in simple chess? Um. Well, yes, I guess because it's um, it's a primer, so there's loads of stuff that he doesn't cover. Um, but I, I, I don't mean that as a criticism because it, I don't think he he means to. He's he's done given an introduction to the to the principles and he's cut away everything else. You know, if you, he didn't set out to write a positional chess encyclopedia. So, for example, um, he deals with isolated queens pawns, but only as a weakness. He doesn't discuss how they could be a benefit and what where the the strengths are in, in having them um he he touches on hanging pawns in um it's in the karpov spassky game um and it's just a side note it's a, a side note to say um uh, it's one of those typical kind of i think it's a queen's indian where black spassky in this case takes back on c5 with a bishop and he could have taken back with a b pawn so instead of because he took back with the bishop he takes an isolated pawn could have taken back with a b pawn and had hanging pawns and that's and steen gives like a two or three sentence uh, note if that and that's his entire coverage of hanging pawns um he has a chapter on open files he doesn't have a chapter on diagonals for example he doesn't have a specific chapter on um playing with a bishop pair he doesn't have a chapter on um peace exchanges and different kinds of positions and different kinds of peace exchanges that would be beneficial um, none of this again is is a criticism of the book it's not if you if you'd have put all of that in what's good about the book would have been lost um he could have put in a you know a Dvoretsky endgame manual kind of doorstep book of a of positional ideas but but then the simplicity of it the the essential nature of the book i think would have been lost and i think it, it's better as it is you just have to know, be aware of what you're buying because if you bought this thinking i will learn everything there is to know about, about positional chess you'll be disappointed but if you buy it knowing what the intention was i think 
I'd hope at least that you'd be very happy with it. And I think there's stuff for everyone to learn. So, so yeah, there is a lot that's not included in the book, but I do think it, that the book does leave you with um, at a point where you can go on to other books that are more advanced, like the Gelfand, like the um, Helston book, like, uh, like others. Yeah. And uh, it calls to mind um, another book that's been covered uh, that we did a recap of uh, me and uh, Todd, Kennedy discussed uh, how to reassess your chest by Jeremy right. Soman, which is another beloved book by club players, rightfully so. But um, I, I believe Neil and I mentioned this as well when we were discussing winning chess strategies. I do feel like there's an, an element of information overload in how to reassess your chest where he, he does a great job explaining concepts, but it's so much that um, at the end you might, uh, you, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hose and at the end you may not feel... Um, able to synthesize what you've learned as well. I think simple chess is just right um, in, in the amount that it presents. Although, as you say, Jonathan, of course, there are a few things that that means it, it doesn't cover. Um, so just want to hit a couple more things uh, in discussing the book. We're going to get to uh, favorite games up next. But first, let's uh, take a break and hear from chessable.com. While Simple Chess is not on Chessable, Winning Chess Strategies by GM Yasser Sarawan is. And also, don't forget that on Chessable, you can import your own data sets. So if you want to do some space repetition with some chess puzzles like Simple Chess, you can upload the PGNs yourself and then quiz yourself periodically using Chessable's Move Trainer technology. So that and many more things, including Anish Giri's new course on the Nidorf, are all available from Chessable.com. Please go to the site and check out everything that they have to offer. Okay, so we are back and we've already talked about Karpov Western in a bit. And Jonathan, I know that since you've done a much deeper dive than me on this book, blogging about it every day, you have several. Could you mention just one or two of your favorite favorite uh, games from this book? Yeah, I mean, th- there are lots. There are a couple of games by Botvinnik that I really like. Um, there are two games by Fisher in the... Um, uh, outpost chapter which I think make a really good pair there's a game against Guardia from 1960 where he basically creates an outpost on d5 and then just wins um, and then there's another game where he's black in a much better known game Unzicker against Fischer from the Varnia Olympiad of 62 where it's structurally it's almost exactly the same as the Guardia game the the pieces are exactly the same they're left on the board um, the only difference in the pawn formation is that there are no a pawns but otherwise the pawns look exactly the same but the difference is how the pieces are placed and fisher's able you know he deliberately gave white the outpost um in the opening because he knew he'd be able to stop white from using it so those two games work really well together um let me think there is i like the the game from from Reykjavik, the fifth game, the Spassky Fischer, Fischer Nimzo Indian, I really like that because it's it's so counterintuitive. I mean, Black takes on all these pawn weaknesses. He has double G pawns. He has an isolated E pawn. He has a backward B pawn on a semi-open file. He gives um, White the bishop pair, and White has a protected pass pawn. But it's actually Black who wins the game. It's Black who's better despite all of this. Um, I like that. But my very favourite game, I think I have to say, is Anderson against uh, Rainer Knack, I think you pronounce it, um, in the Open Files chapter. Um, because it looks, when you just play through it, it looks it looks like a nothing game. It looks like White just plays a few moves, Black plays really badly, and then after 25 moves, 
he resigns. But but actually, it's there's some really subtle manoeuvring where you think, well, why did why did Black just let White take the D files? Well, because White made him. When you look at the notes, and I certainly I wouldn't have been able to understand this without Steen's book. But when you look at the notes, you see actually what White was doing wasn't just aimless manoeuvring. It was he was getting Black into a position where he could take the D file. And you know, 25 moves that would normally be a miniature. You'd expect if you're going to take down a, a decent player. I think Knack was a IM at the time. He became a GM later. I, I think I'm right in saying. You'd expect to have to kind of launch a, some kind of sacrificial attack. There'll be, you know, there'll be mayhem against the king. But no, it's just quiet manoeuvring. And then he makes this little pawn move on move 25 and, and Black resigns. I, I really enjoy that game. And I think it's a, a game that would be easy to be overlooked if you didn't have someone to explain what was going on for you. So I, my absolute favorite, I would say, would be that one. Okay. Yeah. And my favorite is also an Ulf Anderson game where he's black against Luther Vogt. It's in, uh, I believe it's in um, the space chapter, um, but uh, it's a Sicilian Svenigen and he just um, uses the principle of two weaknesses and um, uh, outplays him in the end game. Um, the, the basic thesis being that uh, he, he raises the point that often a half open file can be better than an open file in terms of um, increasing your mobility because a half open file, you're, you're pressing your opponent's pawn automatically. But an open file, sometimes your opponent can have all of the entry points covered um, for your pieces. So it's like, great, your, your rook is on this wide open file, but it can't go anywhere. Whereas on a half open file, you're automatically creating pressure. And it's a really good insight. And the game just illustrates it uh, perfectly. Um, so I, I wanted to share a few of my favorite quotes, just a couple. Um, I already mentioned, um, I already mentioned the one about the, uh, Karpov game, the Shigorin, Roy Lopez. One other one I wanted to share is, uh, the essence is, uh, again, in the space chapter. Although really, again, as Jonathan says, all the chapters are good, but for some reason that this one really resonated with me the most, because I just feel like the concept often seems nebulous. So, um, Steen writes, he says, quote, the essence of simple chess is mobility. Pieces need to be kept active and used economically. All the objectives of simple chess can be traced back to this underlying notion. Outposts are springboards from which pieces can generate activity. Weak pawns hamper mobility because they require protection. Bad bishops are bad because their movements are restricted. However, the single most important factor in determining mobility must be space. But what is space? Terms like white has the freer game, white has greater control, black is cramped, crop up frequently in annotations. But what do they really mean and how is space apportioned? So I'll leave it there. You'll have to read the book if you want to find out what his answer is. But he uh, does lay it out in, um, in, in a very, um, very instructive fashion. And I also liked a quote in one of the Botvinnik games you mentioned. Um, where he says, uh, White being Botfinex control of the position is so great that he could inscribe his initials on the board with oh, his yeah. king if he wanted. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so in in summing up, Jonathan, I mean, there's so much from this book, but I do feel like we should, for our listeners, just try to try to distill a few improvement lessons that that listeners might take from our close readings of this book. So, what do you think? So, I I think I. There are three things in particular that I've taken away, and uh, since I've been working with the book, I've, I've thought about quite often in when I'm looking at other training positions where I'm going through my games. First of all, the point of playing positionally is not 
to avoid any kind of positional weakness in your own camp. It's not to avoid giving up outposts. It's not to avoid giving the other side an open file. The point is you can let those things happen if they can't take advantage of them. Uh, in the very first game in the book, um, Botvinnik uh, trades rooks, for example, on the d-file and then has no interest at all in his put, putting his queen on the d-file. And even when Black does and can bring the queen down into his own camp, Black, he, Botvinnik doesn't challenge that. And the, the reason is because he knows that, or he, he'd worked out that Black wouldn't actually be able to use that entry point. So, um, And in one of the first games in the outpost chapter, for example, I think it's Benko against Nidorf. Both sides have an outpost on King Bishop 5. But Nidorf, who was playing Black, the problem is is that he's put his knight there before White has castled, so White can castle long, which he does. But Black's already committed to casting, so White's outpost is near to the Black King. And that makes it relevant, whereas Black's isn't. So it's okay to play, to give weaknesses up as long as you know what you're doing and as long as you've worked out that Black can't actually use them or the other side can't actually use them because a, a weakness that can't be exploited isn't a weakness, that famous old saying. Um, secondly, I've really started to think a lot about open files and how they can be used and this whole idea of entry points. And without an entry point, the file is not, of, of any benefit so it, it doesn't matter one of my favorite sayings in in the book is uh the minor pieces play a major role in determining who controls open files which is a really simple thing but i just never thought about it before and, and but when you do think about it it's true because it is that thing of okay do i have an entry point on the seventh do i have an entry point on d7 for a rook well i don't if black has a knight on f6 for example and thinking about how whether I need to to control a, a file, or as happens in a lot of games in the book, one side uses the open file to trade off all the rooks to eliminate counterplay. Uh, and thinking about how beneficial open files are, I think I've probably overestimated them in my play up until now. I've probably thought, you know, as as Dean mentions in in the chapter, every beginner knows that you put rook, rooks on open files, and I think. While that's true, it's not always it's not always helpful, and I probably just kind of reflectively would just be thinking rook open file open file rook without thinking about the subtleties behind that. Um, and thirdly, I would say I thought a lot about one of the things I noticed in the book quite often when one side has a fianchetto bishop um, in the Botvinnik Donner game it happens for example um, that that side is willing to give up the fianchetto bishop to to actually enhance control of, a, for example, a bishop on g2, they'd be willing to give it up to enhance control of the light squares. Because if you give it up for the opponent's bishop, then you've taken away one more piece that can cover a light square weakness on c6, as the example in the Botvinnik Donner game. Or quite often there's a, a bishop that's fianchetto, but it gets rerouted to another diagonal. Um, which happens in that um, Anderson game that you mentioned. Um, it happens in the first Botvinnik game. That's the very first game in the book. Um, there's a game, um, I think it's Steen Planich. Maybe it happens there as well. And again, I think I've been, because I've played a lot of systems with Fianchetto bishops, and I've always been, it's very much in my mind that once you've got a Fianchetto bishop, you don't give it up for 
anything short of a false win because if you have no Fianchetto Bishop but you've got a Fianchetto King, then you're leaving weak scares all over the place. You can get mated. Everyone's seen those games where you take a rook with your bishop and you just get chopped completely. And again, I think I've been overvaluing the Fianchetto Bishop is and that, yes, it can be strong, but there are also times when its job is done and it can go and you can actually enhance your game um, by allowing it to be traded or moving it somewhere else. And those three things are, are things I've thought a lot about since rereading um, Steen's book. And I'm going through again, actually, to try and identify the different games where these these things happen so I can actually get a little um, a thematic index of, of this kind of thing. Good stuff. Yeah. And the one thing I would add is just, uh, again, on the concept of space, uh, Steen does a really good jo job explaining why uh, why it is that when you have more pieces than you're when you have a lot of pieces on the board um, a space advantage is more important especially when it comes to minor pieces that's something highlighted by boris gelfand in his books but his being a super a much more advanced um uh set of books for for a, a higher chess level audience uh he doesn't do um as a thorough a job as explaining why that is as uh, steen does in the space chapter so because it's such a positional book i think it's a little hard to uh to do the improvement takeaways justice here on this audio only podcast but i think um in, in summation obviously we can reiterate that we strongly recommend this book um I'm, my only quibble with the book really uh is the classic um you know, um, off mentioned quibble with any book that doesn't have, um, an ebook version. And just to clarify, when I say an ebook, I mean, one where you can play through the moves, like obviously it's on Kindle, it's a great deal on Kindle, but you do always have to jump through some hoops, um, to, to play through it. If, it, if there's no like forward chess version or, um, every man chess, by the way, when you buy what they call an ebook, they actually send you the PGN files. So getting back to, uh, Jeff Anderson's question about ways to, um, re uh, reiterate the material. If you're ever reading something from every man chess, it can be worth it to buy the ebook just because they send you the PGNs and then you have them in chess space. If you have chess space and you can repeat them, but yeah, no forward chess or new in chess reader or anything like that. Um, is really my only quibble with the book. Other than that, I think it's basically the perfect positional primer. Um, did you have any um, any quibbles with it, Jonathan? I, I have one quibble and then a bunch of other stuff that's not a quibble for me, but some people might might think it is. So my, my one genuine quibble is that the edition I have, which is a, a Faber and Faber from the 80s, is that the print is really small. And that wasn't an issue for me back then, but it is now, and I'm, uh -huh. it is tough to read, or at least harder than it might be. In terms of other stuff, I mean, people probably will want to know that some of Steen's analysis does not bear up under computer scrutiny, yeah, and, and possibly which... quite a chunk of it. Now, people will take a view on that. I don't think it matters myself. I'd, I'd be interested to know what you think, actually, Ben, but somebody might so you should, people should be aware that when someone steen says oh black can't risk doing this black won't dare to do this put it on high arcs high arcs does not see the problem at all sometimes anyway but i don't yeah, know what I, do you think do you, do you think is that a problem for a, a book these days especially not a positional book like that i mean that's going to be true of any you know 20 year or older chess book there it's just unavoidable no matter how much 
work you did on the book, there's going to be things that a computer catches that you didn't. So to me, it's not a knock at all in this case. I mean, maybe there would be one where just like everything a author says is disproved. I mean, that might be more an issue with like um, an opening book or if someone's just kind of uh, freestyling about like some tactical concept or something. But but in this book, it, it's... um it's not an issue at all. I also just wanted to mention vis-a-vis the small print. So you have the original version, which if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, is in descriptive, right? Jonathan? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it is. So bringing it back to what uh, Fred Wilson did for this book, in addition to uh, convincing Dover to reproduce this book, which thanks for Fred to Fred for doing that. He mentioned that he actually specifically convinced them that because it's a uh, shorter book that they could use bigger typeset and bigger diagrams. So thanks to Fred for doing that because it's definitely not an issue. In I I had the paper book, but for the purposes of uh, highlighting stuff, I got it on Kindle, and um, definitely not an issue for for either one um, uh, of those uh, editions. So yeah, and I, I saw in our notes, Jonathan, you also mentioned that um, it ends very abruptly, which is, yeah. I've noticed is like a thing in chess books. I don't know why why authors can't just write some like summary. And I think you also mentioned um, that they he doesn't do a great job. Like Silman does a good job with the uh, end of chapter summaries and how to reassess your chess and the test positions. Um, there's there's none of that in this book. It's just thirty. Um, beautifully, uh, pre- beautifully presented and uh, expertly explained instructive chess games, no more, no less. So there could be like a companion workbook or something. I think that would be uh, great, but, but there, so listeners know what they're getting there. There isn't that now, but it's still uh, an amazing book. Yeah, I, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. It's there is um, the Rios book on pawn structures. I really like because he actually sits down and says, "This is what you could have learned from this game," or "This is what I hope you would have learned from this game." And my notes to it, which I think is a really good exercise for the author as much as the reader, just because it keeps a focus on what it is they're trying trying to say. And and Steen, Steen doesn't do that like a, a lot of books i don't think it's any worse than a lot of books but it, it does very much just like okay that's the end of this game and there's no there's no summary in terms of the workbook no um there is there isn't any i mean there's a in winning chess strategies i think there are a few questions here and there but there's absolutely none in simple chess um, which i think is a bit of a shame but then again it's not supposed to be a textbook and you can um do your do your own and talking about how can how can people work with this book that's something that i've done which is i've got 280 some positions that i intend to just cycle through um my my attitude to flashcards is slightly different to neil's in that and i'm slightly loath to go up against him because obviously he is the (laughs) doctor of woodpecker but we had a little bit of a chat about it on twitter and he was he was saying you know if there's a position where there's one or two maybe clearly best moves then it's worth it's worth a flashcard whereas i'm very much it doesn't really matter to me what's the best move i just want to know i want to be reminded of that position and if if it's not so when king plays when steam sorry botvinik plays king g2 where steam makes that comment you mentioned about writing his name on the chessboard with a king i don't care whether that's the best move or not what i care about is the fact that king he's he's got the position under control he can spare a tempo to make the king safe so i'm not trying to remember that exact position i'm trying to remember that idea and and that's 
that's what I've done with those positions. So working through your own, creating your own set of cards is definitely something you can do, or metaphorical cards. I guess most people, I know not Neil, but I think most other people would do this uh, on the on the computer rather than genuine actual file cards. Um, and I guess the other thing about the book, just to talk about the, the engine analysis, is one of the reasons why I don't think it matters that much is because the variations aren't really the key to the book. It's his prose um, and what he writes. And that is still true, even if there's a a variation he gives occasionally to tactically justify something doesn't actually work. Um, and that is one of the strengths of the book. And it's, it's, it's a shame that there's no kind of concluding summary about that. On the other hand, it does leave it open for you to discuss that with somebody else if, if you can. And again, this is something that that we can perhaps do with this book because of the way it's written. It's really it's really easy to discuss with somebody else about the game and about what Steam says and what you take from the game. Whereas a book like Helston, it's like here's a position, here's a position, here's a position, here's a position, and you either solve it or you don't, and it's just a move on to the next one, and then you try and get what you need to take from that position. But there's a lot of text here. There's a lot of English that you can get your head around and think about what does this mean and how can you apply it to, to games. And in fact, Martin uh, Justison, I think I'm pronouncing that, he, while I was in the middle of this series of posts, he, he put on Twitter a game that he played in the Queen's Gambit Declined Exchange where he played this kind of perfect minority attack that could have come straight out of um, Steen's book. And it was great to discuss that with him. And I asked if I could put it on the blog and he said, yes, which I was pleased about. So although there is this, no, there is no summary from Steen that would have been lovely to have. It is something that we can create ourselves that we can kind of build a community ourselves with, with other people who are working through the book. And hopefully if anyone wants to read what I've, I've made a few notes on every game if everyone, anyone wants to work through the book and just think, well, how do my thoughts compare to, to Jonathan's, then they can come on the blog and just have a look and if they want to leave their own thoughts too. So, so yeah, there is no conclusion, but I guess we can still, it's nothing that we can't put in ourselves. And Steam does leave us with, although he doesn't do certain things, he does leave us with the ability that we, we have the material to work with if we want to do it ourselves. Yeah. And um, not to belabor the point, Jonathan, but you really do do a good job on your blog. So for me personally, like I, you know, I'm so busy uh, frantically reading chess books for people I'm going to interview, um, as well as frantically reading books for these book recaps. So when I personally want to revisit Simple Chess, my blog, your blog will probably be my first stop because you you go through each game and present three takeaways from each game. So I encourage listeners to take to check that out. And uh, on that note, Jonathan, I just wanted to say thank you. I mean, I know this is a big undertaking, um, especially especially what you've done on your blog, but also taking this time to sort of synthesize all the thoughts you've gathered and joining me on this podcast it's my pleasure it's it's a, a really good book it's been a it's been a very easy book to read um i'm going to go through it again in next year i'm going to do some posts on revisiting the book and how to how to work with a book that you've actually already read or whether to work with the book you've already read so if people want to stay around for that um then that's great and i also have to to thank you ben for for this series um this and the the improving amateur series i think are the best resources available for people who want to improve at chess it's just amazing the quality of of uh, material that you put out for free it's uh, 
it's a really great thing for the chess community that you do this and i'm just delighted to be part of it uh, thanks that's really kind of you um and of course uh, as we do with these book recaps we're uh, we're going to um make a donation to a chess charity and you you mentioned jonathan uh, you're on board with uh, another gift to a uh, chess and prisons initiative yeah i mean lots of people end up in prison for lots of different reasons um without going too much into the politics of it if there's one thing we all can agree on i guess hopefully that that is not going to be a great experience for people and probably shouldn't be but at least if we can make it a beneficial one then that's a good thing and if chess can be part of that then that's a good thing um so yeah i'll be very happy to to, to donate to that program it sounds like a really good program Okay. Yeah. And I actually, I don't know if this program has a name, but Elizabeth Spiegel, friend of the former guest of the podcast did put me in touch uh, with someone who, who works with people in prison and is able to get books to prisons. He's in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. So um, when, uh, when Jerry, who helped me out with blindfold chess, Jerry Wells uh, suggested that donation, that's where that went. And that is most likely where this one will be going um, as well. And uh, yeah, couldn't, couldn't think of a worthier cause. So last thing before we let Jonathan out of here, we do have some blindfold puzzles for you from the aforementioned Martin Justison, who uh, will be, uh, may you may have already heard his interview by the time you hear this. You may have not. It's uh, This is coming out a few days before his interview on uh, January 5th. But in any event, we'll be sharing a few blindfold puzzles from him. And next month, the tentative plan is to recap the classic chess book, um, Seven Deadly Chestins, one of my personal favorites by Grandmaster Jonathan Rousen and um, um, uh, constitutional law professor David Franklin will be joining me from that. I hope I have your uh, exact profession within the law realm right there, David, but looking forward to that uh, for one of my uh, favorite books. Um, so Jonathan, thanks so much. I know it's uh, starting to get late there over there in Great Britain. So uh, again, I really appreciate this and then encourage listeners to check out your blog, follow you on Twitter, anywhere else they should keep up or are those the two main uh, methods? That's, that's pretty much it, I think. I'm on Lee Chess, but um, I'm having another one of my periodic attempts to stop playing Blitz. So <laughs> I am, in fact, I'm going to say it now, I am stopping playing Blitz from the time that this program comes out so i've got a couple of days left and then Excellent. that's it so no more blitz for me and then yeah twitter mostly and the blog um will be the main things for sure Excellent. Well, thanks again, Jonathan. And listeners, stay tuned if you want to hear uh, the two blindfold puzzles. Um, but yeah, I will catch you on Twitter, Jonathan. Have a good night. Good night. And we are back with your slightly less than monthly blindfold chess puzzles. These come courtesy of Martin Justison, who's out with his new book, Blindfold Endgame Visualization, 50 Chess Positions. So as we talk about in the January 5th Adult Improver interview, he in this book, he's got a blank page where he lists the piece arrangement, and then the next page he shows the diagram, and then you can see the answer. So it's a great way to train your visualization skills, and Martin has generously shared two of the positions for this month's podcast. So here comes position number one. It is white to move and draw. And as always, I'll have a link to the diagram in the show description. And from there, you can click on, and I'll also list where the pieces are in the show description if you need a refresher. And then you can click on the diagram and turn on the engine in order to find out the answer. First one is meant to be easier than the second. So here's number one, white to move and draw. White has a king on c6, 
and a bishop on a4. That's it. Black has a king on b1 and a pawn on b2. So once again, white has a king on c6 and a bishop on a4. Black has a king on b1 and a pawn on b2. And this one, if you're newer to endgame puzzles, I really think if you stick with this one, most listeners should be able to get it, how white can force a draw. So stick with that one. And then the second one is a bit more challenging. For this one, it involves a knight, which I've noticed knights can be a little trickier when you're doing visualization exercises. They take more practice, I think, than rooks and bishops at least. So this one, white has a king on c4 and a pawn on c6. And black has a king on h2 and a knight on d8. And by the way, it is white to move and win. To repeat the position, king on c4 for white, pawn on c6 for white. For black, a king on h2 and a knight on d8. So how can white force getting a queen? So that's it for this month. Martin's book does have some more challenging puzzles. Um, As you get towards the later half of the book, they're challenging for me. So definitely recommend it across a wide range of ratings if you want to improve your chess visualization skills. So thanks for listening, everyone. I'll hopefully be back next month with another recap. But in the meantime, have a happy new year and I will catch you guys on the interview shows. Take care, everyone. Thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, telling your friends, writing positive reviews on podcast platforms. All of that stuff helps. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Beneficial1. Join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can find the link on the website. And we are back in action on Instagram, at Perpetual Chess, sharing a weekly clip from the podcast. So follow us over there as well. But of course, the main purpose of these credits is to thank everyone who makes the show possible by their financial support. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would have ceased to exist a long time ago. And for that, I am forever grateful and work to continually improve and expand the offerings from Perpetual Chess. So without further ado, I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Deaths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, Derek Jones, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfs, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gulick, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jeff Martinson, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John Mark- MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, The Famous Mr. Dodgy, The Nerd Nays Twitch Channel, Peter Sodi, The Playmore Chess Academy of the Hampton Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, 
The Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach J's Chess Academy, Corey Budson, Costa Chorus, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Decker, FM Donnie Ariel, Douglas Matthew, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Emmanuel Langlois-Robitai, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Indrick Ryland, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart-Lavoie, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovacs, Jacob Turan, Jacques Perry, James Espenwall, James Banastia, James Muir, Jason Willem, J.J. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, John Tully, Juan Almaguer, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurty, Jonathan Slater, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, WGM Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Boyce, Kevin Pryor, Kior Gada of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostya Kavutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Mark Miller, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Tempo, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbuck, Robert Tichi, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Walder, Shane Unger, the Sil- Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William H. Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of of chess1000.com and of course Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening everyone. We will be back next week with another episode of Perpetual Chess. Podcast Network.
I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.